Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, disability rights activist, public speaker, writer, storyteller, digital communications consultant, podcast host, all described Emily Ledow, my guest today. Emily was born with Larson syndrome, a genetic physical disability, leaving her a wheelchair user. At the ripe old age of 10, Emily was featured on several Sesame Street episodes to educate other youngsters about living her life with this disorder that affects the development of bones throughout the body. Fast forward a few years to 2013, when Emily graduated from Long Island's Adelphi University with a bachelor's degree in English. In 2017, she was named to one of the school's 10 under 10 young alumni. A year later, she was honored with the Paul G. Hearn Emerging Leader Award from the American Association of People with Disabilities. Emily is the author of Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. She's also the editor-in-chief of the Rooted in Rights blog, a platform designed to highlight narratives on the disability experience. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Self, Salon, and she's given numerous talks on behalf of the U.S. Department of Education to the United Nations. Oh, and Emily co-hosts The Accessible Stall, a podcast that focuses on disability issues. So, Emily, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Long Island today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, I never heard of Larson syndrome. Is it ubiquitous? It is actually a pretty rare disorder. Uh, last I checked our stats, I believe it was something like one in a hundred thousand people oh, come on. are diagnosed with it. Uh, and as if to, uh, you know, say that maybe I should be playing the lottery because of the rarity of it. Um, my mother and her younger brother, my uncle also have it, although it manifests differently in each of us. And I am pretty much a full-time wheelchair user. I actually would note that I call myself a wheelchair user instead of saying wheelchair bound because okay. I'm very much someone who sees my wheelchair as a source of freedom and a source of mobility and a way to get around mm -hmm. the world. So mm -hmm. if anything, it, it does the opposite of, of binding me to anything. Um, and my, my mother also uses a wheelchair most of the time and my uncle uses a wheelchair sometimes. So it just manifests differently in different people. So there's degrees of the intensity of the syndrome. Yes, I would say that everyone who experiences it has similarities, but also very much has their own personal experience with how it manifests within them. This is all you've ever known. It is. Yeah. So um, it is genetic and I was born with it. And so it's very much a part of my life experience and a part of what makes me who I am. Obviously, the fact that your mom, as well as your uncle, have Larson syndrome was what a bonus for you, for lack of a better word? You know, a lot of people would say it's really tragic, but to me, it's been a really great gift because I grew up with these built in role models. Hello. And I knew that, you know, it's very much possible to thrive as you grow older with a disability. And so I'm, I'm very much someone who considers myself lucky. Mm -hmm. You know, the expression, how pregnant are you? You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? Does that apply to Larson syndrome? I would say that there are definitely um, 
degrees degrees of it yeah as you were mentioning before but at the same time yes you know if you have that diagnosis you'll certainly have manifestations of it and it sort of depends on the person how it impacts them I mean there can be impacts for cardiac related issues it can cause muscle weakness and it can cause joint dislocation so it kind of just depends on the person so in other words how the disease initially manifests itself in someone is basically how it stays with you or does it get worse does it get better it's not necessarily progressive Um, But it is something that can change over time simply because our bodies change over time. It's a very natural human thing for our bodies to continue to evolve as we go through life. So talk to me, Emily, about growing up with the fact that you were in a wheelchair. I am assuming that you were integrated into a regular public school. Yes, I did actually go to mainstream public school, although I was pretty much the only visibly disabled kid who was in that school. And so what the hell was that like? Good question. You know, on the one hand, I do feel like I had a relatively positive experience in most senses, but what was always lacking for me was seeing peers with disabilities. And, you know, when you don't have yourself reflected back at you, it can be incredibly challenging to figure out how to find your place in the world. And so um, it wasn't until my parents actually started sending me to summer camps for kids with disabilities that I really started to connect with other disabled kids and form a sense of community and identity. It's funny when you said um, summer camp, the documentary Crip Camp, where young people with varying degrees of disabilities uh, spend the summer in the Catskills. Did you do that? It was not the cat skills, but it was exactly the same sort of thing. Yeah, it very much was in the tradition of crib camp. And a lot of the people who I connected with when I was at camp are people who have also become really passionate disability advocates. So I think that uh, summer camps are where a lot of the action happens in the disability (laughs) community. Uh, What was that like as a youngster? First of all, maybe having to explain to your other friends and classmates, the fact that you were different, and I'm not being facetious about that. Yes, they know you're different by virtue of the fact you had to be in a wheelchair. But on the one hand, to sort of feel that maybe aloneness, if I can put that word in, and then all of a sudden say, hey, we want you on TV. I think that there was always a sense of isolation. And especially when I was younger, I very much wanted to shy away from talking about my disability unless it was convenient for me. Um, I was very much of the mindset that the best compliment you could pay me was, oh, I don't even think of you as disabled. Mm -hmm. And that has since evolved to the point where if you tell me that you don't think of me as disabled, to me, that's erasing a whole part of my identity. And I very Ah. much want you to think of me as disabled, but it took me a while to get there. And so at 10 years old, um, you were referencing being on TV. So I appeared on multiple episodes of a season of Sesame Street to educate kids about my life with a disability. And I think that was my first 
taste of what it could be like to show other people that disability is just a natural part of the human experience. Now, granted, I was 10 years old. So, you know, I don't know how cognizant I was of the power of what I was doing. Right, right. In hindsight, I mean, having that opportunity to advocate on a national platform really gave me the push that I needed to embrace disability and not to want to shy away from it. So was that just seminal in your life in terms of the direction that it took personally as well as professionally that here you are never having thought that you would be hanging out with Elmo and Kermit the Frog and (laughs) whoever? I would say it was not seminal until later. I was always a vocal advocate because I saw that modeled for me in my mother and in my family. I knew that speaking up for myself was incredibly important, but my plan had always been to be a high school English teacher. And in a way, uh, Sesame Street and my early advocacy experiences are connected to that because I thought that I could create a classroom experience that was inclusive for everyone and really respected the fact that everybody learns differently, thinks differently, moves, communicates differently. And so it wasn't until midway through college that I had a quarter life crisis, I like to call it. And I said, I don't want to teach English. I want to be a disability advocate. And I don't know what exactly caused that shift. I think it was a really gradual thing where I started to come into a sense of self and then eventually realized that this was the direction that I wanted to take. But it was a long journey to get there. Perhaps the word might be mission. It could very well be. I think at this point, my mission in life is really to educate about disability, to help demystify it, if you will, Mm -hmm. and to get people to understand that even though it's something that we think of as taboo and something that we think of as shameful. And that we feel so sorry for you. Exactly, exactly. And I really want to push back against that pity narrative and also against that inspiration narrative. I don't want you to be inspired because I got out of bed this morning (laughs) and got into my wheelchair, you know, but nor do I want you to feel bad for me. I just want you to recognize that this is how I'm experiencing the world and that's okay. And I love teaching people about that. What's that like though for you feeling, if I can put words in your mouth, that you always have to work harder than somebody else? It's definitely something that I grapple with. So, you know, in terms of actually physically having to work harder. I certainly have my moments of frustration where I wish that things were just physically easier to do. And I certainly have my moments where I wish that the world was more accessible, meaning that it was more welcoming to the disability community. So that can be something as small as having a ramp in front of a store or something as big as inclusive employment practices, right? Every issue really is a disability issue. And so in terms of that area of things that I struggle with, I would love to see that change. Uh, And I think there's more progress to be made. 
And then in terms of emotionally, there's also the toll of feeling like you're constantly a teachable moment. And I think I've set myself up for that in a lot of ways because of the career path that I chose. So I'm okay with that. But I also understand that not everybody with a disability just wants to live their lives constantly having to teach people about their existence. Sure. How old are you? I just turned 30. So you have been working this hard for 30 years. Essentially, yes. Um, And, you know, but I don't say that because I'm looking to evoke any sort of emotion about people feeling bad or anything like that. Quite the opposite, actually. I really want people to kind of take a look at that and say, why have we created a society where so much is more difficult for the disability community? Why have we allowed a society to exist where every system that we have in place in some way discriminates against the disability community? Do you feel at all that the more things change, the more they stay the same? For sure. I was born a year after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a really seminal law for the disability community. And I always say that you can create policies, but you can't legislate an attitude change. It's right. So 30 years on, I mean, I'm literally someone who came up just as the Americans with Disabilities Act was going into effect. And 30 years on, I still feel like there are a lot of ways that the law is ignored. And that's because there's policies in place, but we haven't changed attitudes. Well, it was certainly got such attention because of Crip Camp, how many of the the campers became activists and worked their asses off to get this act passed and to open everybody's eyes to this. The work of the activists who went to uh, Camp Jeanette, Crip Camp, and then eventually all came together in Berkeley, California to shape the work of the disability rights movement is something that I don't take for granted for a second. It Mm -hmm. is the reason why I do enjoy so many rights and freedoms today. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important to strike a balance between being incredibly grateful for all of the total badasses who came before me and also recognize that it's incumbent upon me and the next generations to continue that work. So what was that like for you in your head to say, well, you know, I'm going to get a bachelor's in English and maybe I'll teach or maybe I'll write. At some point, it must have, like I said, become a no-brainer that you're going to not do that. (laughs) You know, when I was midway through college, I found myself realizing that I could teach in an English classroom or I could find other ways to use those skills to teach in bigger classrooms. And so that's essentially what I've done. I took all of the training that I got and the life experience, put it together, and it's really shaped my passion for advocacy and doing it in a way that focuses on storytelling. I'm very much about telling stories and about forming connections with people because it's one thing to give someone a number. I can say... One in four American adults have a disability, which is the current statistic. And you would say, oh, wow, yeah, that's a lot. But then if I start telling you a very specific story about an instance of discrimination that I experienced while looking for a job or while trying to attend a play or a comment that someone made about me, suddenly it's not just a statistic. You realize that, no, that one in four 
is a real person. Right, right. So take us on that trajectory of what was the first event for you that I'm going to do this? And and was it becoming an author? Was it becoming a speaker? Was it the editor-in-chief of this blog? You do a lot of shit, Emily. I, I like to wear a lot of hats. I do. And I think that's because it really is what keeps me going and makes me feel very, very driven. But the first real moment of feeling like this was what I wanted to do for a career actually happened in college because there were a series of awareness weeks happening and there was drunk driving awareness week. And then following that, there was Disability Awareness Week. And I could not get over the juxtaposition of something like drunk driving and disability. And of course, we need to be aware that drunk driving is a problem. But to me, the implication felt like we also need to be aware of disability because it's also a problem. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so the framing of it really frustrated me. And I will never forget that one of the resident assistants in my dorm said, can I borrow your wheelchair for an event? And I said, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? No, true story. And so I had just at that point been driven to a feeling that maybe we weren't quite understanding the point of disability awareness. You think? (laughs) It had just become fun and games. Let's borrow Emily's wheelchair and do an obstacle course. What does that teach you about disability? Oh my God. Oh my God. So I wrote an op-ed for the school newspaper and I talked about why I took issue with the juxtaposition of something like Alcoholism Awareness Week and Disability Awareness Week. Although I do want to say that my thinking has actually since evolved on that, at least in the sense that some people do consider alcoholism to be a disability. Okay. But my feelings on awareness remain the same. You know, why are we focusing on awareness? Why are we not focusing on action, on acceptance, on inclusion? And so from that moment forward, something really snapped in me where I said, I want to talk about this and I want to do it for a living. And I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) And did you basically embark on this solo? I had really great support. My parents have always been an incredible support system. And I'm so, so lucky. Um, And at the time, I was dating somebody who was also a wheelchair user, actually. And he was really supportive at that time as well. So I started to kind of figure out how I could carve a path for a career that I really knew nothing about. And I I called up a local disability organization and I said, hi, can you give me an internship this summer? (laughs) And they had no idea what to do with that or what to do with me. But I ended up working there for the summer and kind of created my own internship. And then at the end, they paid me with a $75 gift card to a clothing store that I like. Oh, whoa. <laughs> and I said, you know How what? generous. <laughs> I'll take the, the resume experience. And so after barging in there and creating my own internship, once I graduated college the following year, I had found another internship program in Washington, D.C. through the American Association of People with Disabilities. And they placed me at an organization for the summer. And that was where I first 
immersed myself in disability as a culture and a career. And so it was never a solo journey. It's always been in community with incredibly supportive people. Obviously, you have always had to prove yourself in regardless of what you've undertaken. I think that there is an inclination that I have and it's something that I've put on myself to be an overachiever and I can't shake that. Um, When I was younger, I used to feel like academics were my sports because I couldn't physically play sports. And so I wanted to be very good at academics because I thought that that was how I would prove to people that my disability was not something that was stopping me. That you were going to be defined by it exclusively. But then all these years later, I've come to realize that I was internalizing a lot of the stigma and discrimination towards disability within myself because there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a disabled person. There is nothing wrong with moving about the world in the way that works for you. And if you're not an academic, that's okay. We live in this society that tells us that we have to prove that we can overcome disability. I don't buy into that anymore. I think that disability is just something that's part of who you are Mm. and however you move about the world and however you communicate and whatever you're good at or whatever you need support with, that's okay. That's part of being a human being. What was that like for you in terms of embarking on this road, especially with young people? There's Emily in the spotlight here, you know, with the focus on you and this is who I am and this is what I've done. And, and so there. A lot of young people now come to me and I'm, I'm first of all, still grappling with the fact that I no longer really get to call myself young. Uh, Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, no. Mm. Everything's relative. Okay. You're right. It's relative. uh, Connected to me. You are young. Okay. But But then you have like 12 and 14 year olds who are looking at me like I'm from an entirely other planet. And right. From a a, um, a senior (laughs) citizens (laughs) community. So I'm I'm definitely in that weird flux in terms of identity and age. But there are a lot of people who ask me how I got to where I am and what advice I would give and things like that. And, you know, I always try to remind people I'm one person. And if you've met one person with a disability, then you've met one person with a disability. I'm not representative of 1 billion people worldwide who have a disability. I'm simply a human being who is disabled, who has embraced that as part of my identity. And I have climbed my way up the metaphorical ladder, although ladders are not really accessible, but you get what I mean. (laughs) I get the image. (laughs) Yeah. And so I try to let people know that I don't consider myself some kind of spokesperson for the community. I just consider myself a human being who is passionate about educating and connecting and telling stories and amplifying other people's stories. I'm going to be a little patronizing because I sort of think that's a little bit naive. There's a mission here. And I think that 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 you're exposing and you're sharing and that I'm not, I'm not saying we have to vote for you for president, but, you, <laughs> but you've just got to appreciate that, whether it's a conscious act on your part or not. Something I'm assuming you live with every single day. 
Absolutely. And it's funny you say that because one thing that I love to talk about is the way that our identities overlap and intersect. And so not only am I disabled, but I'm a disabled woman. And so when I am thinking about how I present myself to the world and how the world perceives me, I'm not just thinking about it from the perspective of disability. I'm also grappling with the internalized stigma that comes from being a woman. And I'm constantly having to you know, prove myself in spaces because I am a young disabled woman. But at the same time, I also have a lot of privilege because I can communicate verbally because I am a white woman because I come from a background where I've been financially supported, right? So there's a lot of ways that I sort of balance the privilege that I have with the fact that I'm still fighting to be taken seriously. So at this point in your life, you still are very much the recipient of discrimination. Every day. Every day. Every single day. Whether it's a comment online, whether it's somebody saying something to me when I'm out in public. Like what? What does somebody say to you when you're out in public, for God's sake? Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, A lot of the times the comments are things that people think are funny, but they're really just frustrating to hear. So it'll be like, do you have a license for that thing? Or you're going to get a speeding ticket, you know, or they'll talk to the person that I'm with and not to me. Just literally uh, yesterday, I was trying to go to lunch with a friend. We were going to be eating outdoors and, you know, staying safe, but we were going inside just to order and a woman raced in front of my friend to open the door and then asked my friend, she said, can she get through the door? And my friend looked at me and was like, yeah, we're fine. And Mm -hmm. then she said, oh, well, you just roll along then. And you know, it's not that she didn't mean well, yeah, but it's just that when you're constantly hearing things like that, you're sort of reminded that people don't think of you as a full human being. That's And when you hear that every single day, it does begin to grate on you. But there's also bigger instances of discrimination that we don't think about, whether it's access to public transportation, whether it's access to be able to vote, whether it's access to jobs, education, you name it, there's probably going to be an accessibility issue there. So your work is cut out for you. I mean, you're never not tackling an issue. Pretty much because... Even something like obtaining healthcare, getting the equipment that I need, ensuring that I have access to get from point A to point B if I'm traveling. It's always a matter of being a few steps ahead, of being very hyper aware of the logistics. And it gets tiring after a while, but that's very much the world that we still live in. Yes. I mean, I think to to grouse about it, which you are not doing, is to, I mean, this is how it is for God's sake, you know? And even though there might have been, there might've been some movement on, I would think it fair to say, not glacially in terms of awareness, the work is never, ever, ever, ever done. Can anybody meet Emily Liddell for who Emily Liddell is? Or is Emily always described as a person who's in a wheelchair before she's 30 or funny or has a podcast or is a writer. It just doesn't happen. 
it's interesting because my disability is in so many ways so apparent. So when you meet me in person, the wheelchair is the first thing you see. Uh, it's been a very different world on Zoom as of late because unless you've looked stuff up about me, you probably don't immediately know that I'm in a wheelchair because you don't see it in the screen. And so uh, that's been an interesting experience in and of itself. But yeah, the wheelchair is front and center. My disability is front and center. But at the same time, I go back and forth between wanting to make sure that my disability is not erased as a part of me and wanting to be defined not solely by my disability. So the balance that I hope to strike is that you see me as a disabled woman who is also a writer, who is also a speaker. Disability is part of me and I'm proud of that. You don't need to overlook it to also notice all of these other things about me. But at the same time, it's not the only thing about me. This categorizing and putting in boxes, I just would imagine... Sometimes you want to scream. At least I want to scream for you. I never want to put anybody in a box. And it's also so silly to put people in boxes because nobody is solely one identity. No, but then you felt that you've been put in a box. Exactly. I think that people have boxed me in in a lot of ways. But on the flip side, I think at this point, I've probably boxed myself in in a lot of ways because I've defined myself and my career and my life's work by disability. But it's really just, again, like I was saying, striking that balance. I don't want people to see me only as a disabled woman. And I don't want people to see me just as my wheelchair either. Right, right. I'm a whole human being who is sitting down. What's that been like for you to speak publicly? Are you in demand? I would say yes, as strange as that is to think of myself that way. But I do a lot of public speaking. My top priority though is to really diversify where I speak. So whether it's a large corporation or it's a very small local parent-teacher association, I'm really happy to talk to a variety of different people because my mindset has always been that I want to change one mind at a time. I believe that broad sweeping change is possible, but not if we're not meeting each other where we're at. And so I love the variety of speaking to different crowds from different communities. What's that like for you to acknowledge the impact that you've made? Oh, it's incredibly challenging for me to do that because I deal with so much imposter syndrome. I think that was what I had meant to get at before, just in terms of being a a young disabled woman. There are many days where I wake up and I'm like, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. Why is anybody listening to me? And I think we all go through that on some (laughs) level, that self-doubt. But I I would find that so interesting that on some level, that is one way that you describe yourself. I think that... Being able to call myself a disability activist and knowing that I really have made an impact on people is something that I have to constantly keep reminding myself. Because if I don't keep reminding myself that there are ways that I've made a difference, that's when the work starts to become defeating. Mm -hmm. If you can wake up in the morning and you can say, maybe I'll change one person's mind today, that's how I keep going. Right, right, right. Are you always on? (laughs) 
Um, in some senses, yes. Uh, I like to joke that I'm a professional disabled person and anyone who's part of my life would tell you that, you know, it's disability 24 seven pretty much because I am thinking about it, reading about it, writing about it, talking about it. But at the same time, I definitely have two modes of existing. And there are times when I want to just turn off. And even if I think something is a little bit problematic or I'm frustrated by something, I just want to sit there and just be Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. put my activist hat on. So yeah, um, there are times when I'd like to turn myself off, but I'm probably on more than you would think because disability is not just a career. It's an identity. You know, I don't, take it off and put it on the shelf at the end of the day just because I got out of my wheelchair to get into bed doesn't mean that I'm not disabled anymore when I wake up in the morning I'm disabled when I go to sleep I'm disabled and even though it's my career it's also part of the rest of my life too and so that is what is in your head all the time and that's what's been in your head all these years yeah but oftentimes not in a conscious way It's simply because it's how I move about the world that it just informs my thinking. So in the same way that thinking in a certain language might feel natural to someone who's bilingual, they might move in the direction of thinking in one language instead of the other. For me, I'm thinking in terms of disability, even if I'm not conscious of it. What would you like to do that you haven't done? in your life and in your career? I think a lot of people think when I answer this question that it's probably a cop-out, but I want to be doing what I'm doing on a larger scale. And I want to be doing it in community with more people. Right now, I feel like I have accomplished a lot. I'm very excited about all of the things that I've accomplished, but I want to scale what I am doing so that storytelling is not just something that is my trajectory. It's something that I can support other people to also make that their trajectory as well. So I would love to start a mentorship program where I give people the opportunity to learn about the art of advocacy storytelling. Mm. And that to me is what I have not done yet. I've done it on small scales. I'm lucky to be able to mentor people. I've done a small mentoring fellowship for a couple of disabled writers, but I'd love to see it on a much larger scale. Let's talk about gender in connection with this. Where does that fit in? Your approach to life, your advocacy. I'm just curious, where does, oh does my that, gosh. how does that play out? Where doesn't it fit in? I mean, just like I was saying before, you know, I'm disabled when I wake up and when I go to sleep, I'm also a woman when I wake up and I go to sleep. And so I have all of the feelings of inadequacy that come with being a woman in the world who's constantly showed the ideal physical representation. And I am always saying, I look nothing like that. Right. You know, and sometimes it's something as shallow as, well, I can't strut my stuff in high heels. You know, how can anybody find me sexy if I can't walk around in high heels? Right, right. There's that. And then obviously it's it's bigger things too, like just feeling that I'm not taken as seriously as the man next to me. And so it it's a it's a big variety of feelings that I experience when it comes to being a disabled woman. But largely it 
is something that affects my self-esteem and something that I have to work through every single day just because I don't see anyone like me really shown back at me in the media. And so I have to find acceptance within myself because you don't really get it externally. You're never not working, like I said. Is there time to exhale and just there be, is. just to be? There is. And when that comes, it's a rare and it's a beautiful thing. But it also sometimes comes in those very intimate, quiet moments with the people who know you best or the people who understand your experiences best. So, you know, there are times when, for example, I will just be sitting quietly with my boyfriend and I don't want to be thinking about disability. So I'm not thinking about it. You know, we're just not thinking about it. But sometimes something will flip a switch in my head and something will set me off and then I will need to talk about it. So it's, you never know when the switch is going to flip, but at the same time, in those quiet moments with those people who know you best, I feel like I can turn off and not be constantly calculating. What is his reaction to your activism that you're, (laughs) that you're really out there? People know who you are. Uh, I think he has gotten used to the fact that that's how it's going to be. It's still weird for me, honestly. So I'm sure it's weird for him, but he is supportive and he is patient. And my gosh, he will listen to me talk about it when I need to, but he'll also be the one to tell me like, okay, let's turn it off for a little while Mm -hmm. and just take a break. Mm -hmm. So what groups of people that may not have heard from you in the past, separate from Sesame Street when you were a youngster. How much are you focusing on that age group now? It varies. It absolutely varies. I've spoken to groups of kids, you know, and I've also spoken to groups of educators for students of all ages. I've really spoken to a wide variety of audiences, but I think the major audiences that I continue to want to reach out to are educators and employers. And I think that that's because education and employment shapes so much of the world around us, Uh, whether we want it to or not, it's how it is. And so if we can create more inclusive educational practices, that then will set people up for a more inclusive future, which will then open up further opportunities for them down the line to pursue employment if that's the path that they choose to take. So educators and employers have always been two big areas for me, but I've spoken to people who work for, you know, corporations and they do branding and storytelling. I've spoken to people who are religious leaders. I mean, I want to talk to anyone and everyone who is willing to truly open their mind and listen. And to make change. That's my ultimate hope. I've always felt that if I talk to a small group and they take it back to their larger group. So for example, if I've spoken to a PTA and they bring it back to the school and someone in that school decides that they're going to make a change in how they're teaching, or maybe they're going to make something more accessible for a student, you know, that ripple effect is so exciting to me. Oh, I bet. I bet. What does Emily like to do for fun? 
Fun. What do I like to do for fun? Well, pre-pandemic, it was oh, right. absolutely, <laughs> it was spending a lot of time in New York City. I'm a born and raised Long Islander. So I loved going into the city. I really loved going to shows, but more so offbeat shows. As much as I love Broadway, I also really loved small, uh, local independent theaters. I really love spending time outside, especially there's a couple of really nice parks and pathways by my house that I love walking down. I'm also just a big fan of sitting and unwinding with silly YouTube videos at the end of the day. Um, just, you know, being, being a person in the little in-between moments. Yeah. It doesn't always need to be a great adventure. Sometimes I just want to sit and do nothing. And chill. Exactly. In your social circle, are there many disabled people who you hang with? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Now there are. When I was growing up, not so much just because I wasn't surrounded by. Yeah. Disabled not ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, and also in a way I was a little bit afraid of associating with disabled people because I thought that would somehow call more attention to my disability. And it would define you even more. Exactly. Which now I think is so silly because how hypocritical of me to ask that you accept me for who I am, but I'm afraid to be seen with other people like me, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I had to grapple with that. But now, I mean, the more disabled people, the merrier. A lot of my friends are disabled and I'm very, very lucky because it means that I have so many people who uh, really relate to what that experience is like. Do you ever get depressed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, But the thing that I think people need to understand is that it's not always just like I'm depressed because I'm disabled. You know, like I'm depressed because I'm a human being in the world and sometimes depression is a real thing that we all deal with. I think that there are aspects of my disability that contribute to it, but sometimes it has nothing to do with that. So I think it's the conception that I always try to move people away from is this idea that disability is depressing. Mm. You know, there are hard parts of disability. There are parts of my disability that get me down, but I wouldn't change who I am at all. Wow. What a great way to end on a upbeat, positive note. Emily Laddow, I can't get over how easy this was. And I don't know. I just so appreciate your honesty and, uh, when it comes to females, I mean, this is what's just so great. We, we really rock and rule the world, you know? I would say so. And I'm just so grateful to be able to have insightful conversations like these. So thank you so much. Oh, totally. My pleasure. Anything you want to leave us with that might be on your front burner? Well... I believe that by the time people are hearing this, my book will be out in the world. It's called Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. And so it will hopefully offer a starting point to answer questions that people may have about disability. And I'd love for anyone who wants to check it out to give it a go. Well, thank you for your drive and your need to educate us because it's just such an important thing for everybody. Absolutely everybody. Emily, lots of continued success. And I hope you'll touch base with us down the road. You know where to find us. Absolutely. Thank you, Sandy. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Mm -hmm.